0: Section Eight of the Country of the Blind and Other Stories by H. G. Wells. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Peter Yearsley. The Lord of the Dynamos. The chief attendant of the three dynamos that buzzed and rattled at Camberwell and kept the electric railway going, came out of Yorkshire, and his name was James Holroyd. He was a practical electrician, but fond of whisky a heavy, red-haired brute, with irregular teeth. He doubted the existence of the deity, but accepted Carnot's cycle, and he had read Shakespeare and found him weak in chemistry. His helper came out of the mysterious East, and his name was Azuma Z. but Holroyd called him bar. Holroyd liked a nigger help, because he would stand kicking, a habit with Holroyd and did not pry into the machinery and try to learn the ways of it certain odd possibilities of the negro mind brought into abrupt contact with the crown of our civilization holroyd never fully realized though just at the end he got some inkling of them to define azuma z was beyond ethnology he was perhaps more negroid than anything else though his hair was curly rather than frizzy and his nose had a bridge. Moreover, his skin was brown rather than black, and the whites of his eyes were yellow. His broad cheekbones and narrow chin gave his face something of the viperine V. His head, too, was broad behind and low and narrow at the forehead, as if his brain had been twisted round in the reverse way to a European's. He was short of stature and still shorter of English, in conversation he made numerous odd noises of no known marketable value, and his infrequent words were carved and wrought into heraldic grotesqueness. Holroyd tried to elucidate his religious beliefs and, especially after whisky, lectured to him against superstition and missionaries. Azuma Azumazi, however, shirked the discussion of his gods, even though he was kicked for it. Azumazi had come, clad in white but insufficient raiment, out of the stoke-hole of the Lord Clive, from the Straits' settlements and beyond, into London. He had heard, even in his youth, of the greatness and riches of London, where all the women are white and fair, and even the beggars in the streets are white, and he had arrived, with newly earned gold coins in his pocket, to worship at the Shrine of Civilization. The day of his landing was a dismal one. The sky was dun, and a wind-worried drizzle filtered down to the greasy streets, but he plunged boldly into the delights of Shadwell, and was presently cast up, shattered in health, civilized in costume, penniless, and, except in matters of the direst necessity, practically a dumb animal, to toil for James Holroyd and to be bullied by him in the dynamo shed at Camberwell, and to James Holroyd, bullying was a labour of love. There were three dynamos with their engines at Camberwell. The two that have been there since the beginning are small machines. The larger one was new. The smaller machines made a reasonable noise. Their straps hummed over the drums, Every now and then the brushes buzzed and fizzled, and the air churned steadily whoo, 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 between their poles. One was loose in its foundations and kept the shed vibrating. But the big dynamo drowned these little noises altogether with the sustained drone of its iron core, which somehow set part of the ironwork humming. The place made the visitor's head reel with the throb, throb, throb of the engines, the rotation of the big wheels, the spinning ball valves, the occasional spittings of the steam, and over all the deep, unceasing, surging note of the big dynamo. This last noise was, from an engineering point of view, a defect, but Azumazi accounted it unto the monster for mightiness and pride, If it were possible, we would have the noises of that shed always about the reader, as he reads. We would tell all our story to such an accompaniment. It was a steady stream of din, from which the ear picked out first one thread and then another. There was the intermittent snorting, panting, and seething of the steam engines, the suck and thud of their pistons, the dull heat on the air as the spokes of the great driving wheels came round a note the leather straps made as they ran tighter and looser and a fretful tumult from the dynamos and over all sometimes inaudible as the ear tired of it and then creeping back upon the senses again was this trombone note of the big machine the floor never felt steady and quiet beneath one's feet but quivered and jarred. It was a confusing, unsteady place, and enough to send anyone's thoughts jerking into odd zigzags. And for three months, while the big strike of the engineers was in progress, Holroyd, who was a blackleg, and Azumazi, who was a mere black, were never out of the stir and eddy of it, but slept and fed in the little wooden shanty between the shed and the gates. Holroyd delivered a theological lecture on the text of his big machine. Soon after Azuma Z came. He had to shout to be heard in the din. Look at that, said Holroyd. Where's your eathen idol to match him? And Azuma Z looked. For a moment Holroyd was inaudible, and then Azuma Z heard, Kill a hundred men! Twelve per cent on the ordinary shares, said Holroyd and that's something like a gourd. Holroyd was proud of his big dynamo, and expatiated upon its size and power to Azumazi, until heaven knows what odd currents of thought that and the incessant whirling and shindy set up within the curly black cranium. He would explain in the most graphic manner the dozen or so ways in which a man might be killed by it and once he gave Zi a shock as a sample of its quality. After that, in the breathing times of his labor, it was heavy labor, being not only his own but most of Holroyd's, Azuma Zi would sit and watch the big machine. Now and then the brushes would sparkle and spit blue flashes, at which Holroyd would swear, but all the rest was as smooth and rhythmic as breathing. The band ran shouting over the shaft, and ever behind one, as one watched, was the complacent thud of the piston. So it lived all day in this big airy shed, with him and Holroyd to wait upon it. Not prisoned up and slaving to drive a ship, as the other engines he knew, mere captive devils of the British Solomon, had been, but a machine enthroned those two smaller dynamos azuma z by force of contrast despised the large one he privately christened the lord of the dynamos they were fretful and irregular but the big dynamo was steady how great it was how serene and easy in its working greater and calmer even than the buddhas he had seen at rangoon and yet Not motionless, but living, the great black coils spun, spun, spun. The rings ran round under the brushes, and the deep note of its coil steadied the whole. It affected Azumazi queerly. Azumazi was not fond of labour. He would sit and watch the Lord of the Dynamos, while Holroyd went away to persuade the yard-porter to get whisky although his proper place was not in the dynamo shed but behind the engines and moreover if holroyd caught him skulking he got hit for it with a rod of stout copper wire he would go and stand close to the colossus and look up at the great leather band running overhead there was a black patch on the band that came round and it pleased him somehow among all the clatter to watch this return again and again odd thoughts spun with the whirl of it scientific people tell us that savages give souls to rocks and trees and a machine is a thousand times more alive than a rock or a tree and azumazi was practically a savage still the veneer of civilization lay no deeper than his slop suit his bruises and the coal grime on his face and hands. His father before him had worshipped a meteoric stone, kindred blood it may be, had splashed the broad wheels of Juggernaut. He took every opportunity Holroyd gave him of touching and handling the great dynamo that was fascinating him. He polished and cleaned it until the metal parts were blinding in the sun. He felt a mysterious sense of service in doing this, He would go up to it and touch its spinning coils gently. The gods he had worshipped were all far away. The people in London hid their gods. At last his dim feelings grew more distinct, and took shape in thoughts, and at last in acts. When he came into the roaring shed one morning, he salaamed to the Lord of the Dynamos, and then, when Holroyd was away, he went and whispered to the thundering machine that he was its servant and prayed it to have pity on him and save him from holroyd as he did so a rare gleam of light came in through the open archway of the throbbing machine shed and the lord of the dynamos as he whirled and roared was radiant with pale gold then azumazi knew that his service was acceptable to his lord After that, he did not feel so lonely as he had done, and he had indeed been very much alone in London. And even when his work time was over, which was rare, he loitered about the shed. Then, the next time Holroyd maltreated him, Azumazi went presently to the Lord of the Dynamos and whispered, Thou seest, O my Lord, and the angry whir of the machinery seemed to answer him. Thereafter, it appeared to him that whenever Holroyd came into the shed, a different note came into the sounds of the dynamo. "'My lord bides his time,' said Azumazi to himself. "'The iniquity of the fool is not yet ripe,' and he waited and watched for the day of reckoning. One day there was evidence of short-circuiting, and Holroyd making an unwary examination. It was in the afternoon.' got a rather severe shock. Azumazee, from behind the engine, saw him jump off and curse at the peccant coil. "'He is warned,' said Azumazee to himself. "'Surely my lord is very patient.' Holroyd had at first initiated his nigger into such elementary conceptions of the dynamo's working as would enable him to take temporary charge of the shed in his absence. But when he noticed the manner in which Azumazi hung about the monster, he became suspicious. He dimly perceived his assistant was up to something, and connecting him with the anointing of the coils with oil that had rotted the varnish in one place, he issued an edict, shouted above the confusion of the machinery, "'Don't ye go nigh that big dynamo any more, Booba, or I'll take thy skin off!' Besides. If it pleased azuma Z to be near the big machine, it was plain sense and decency to keep him away from it. azuma Z obeyed at the time, but later he was caught bowing before the Lord of the Dynamos, at which Holroyd twisted his arm and kicked him as he turned to go away. As azuma Z presently stood behind the engine and glared at the back of the hated Holroyd, The noises of the machinery took a new rhythm and sounded like four words in his native tongue. It is hard to say exactly what madness is. I fancy Azuma Azumazi was mad. The incessant din and whirl of the dynamo shed may have churned up his little store of knowledge and big store of superstitious fancy, at last, into something akin to frenzy. At any rate, when the idea of making Holroyd a sacrifice to the dynamo fetish was thus suggested to him, it filled him with a strange tumult of exultant emotion. That night, the two men and their black shadows were alone in the shed together. The shed was lit with one big arc-light that winked and flickered purple. The shadows lay black behind the dynamos. The ball-governors of the engines whirled from light to darkness, and their pistons beat loud and steady. The world outside, seen through the open end of the shed, seemed incredibly dim and remote. It seemed absolutely silent, too, since the riot of the machinery drowned every external sound. Far away was the black fence of the yard, with grey shadowy houses behind, and above was the deep blue sky and the pale little stars. Azuma Zi suddenly walked across the center of the shed above which the leather bands were running, and went into the shadow by the big dynamo. Holroyd heard a click, and the spin of the armature changed. What are you doing with that switch? he bawled in surprise, and I told you then he saw the set expression of Azuma Zi's eyes as the Asiatic came out of the shadow towards him. In another moment, the two men were grappling fiercely in front of the great dynamo. "'You coffee-headed fool!' gasped Holroyd, with a brown hand at his throat. "'Keep off those contact rings!' In another moment, he was tripped, and reeling back upon the Lord of the Dynamos, he instinctively loosened his grip upon his antagonist to save himself from the machine." The messenger, sent in furious haste from the station to find out what had happened in the dynamo shed, met Azumazi at the porter's lodge by the gate. Azumazi tried to explain something, but the messenger could make nothing of the black's incoherent English, and hurried on to the shed. The machines were all noisily at work, and nothing seemed to be disarranged. There was, however, a queer smell of singed hair. Then he saw an odd-looking crumpled mass clinging to the front of the big dynamo, and approaching, recognized the distorted remains of Holroyd. The man stared and hesitated a moment. Then he saw the face, and shut his eyes convulsively. He turned on his heel before he opened them, so that he should not see Holroyd again, and went out of the shed to get advice and help. When Azumazi saw Holroyd die in the grip of the great Dynamo, he had been a little scared about the consequences of his act, yet he felt strangely elated and knew that the favour of the Lord Dynamo was upon him. His plan was already settled when he met the man coming from the station, and the scientific manager who speedily arrived on the scene jumped at the obvious conclusion of suicide. This expert scarcely noticed Azuma Zi, except to ask a few questions. Did he see Holroyd kill himself? Azuma Zi explained he had been out of sight at the engine furnace until he heard a difference in the noise from the dynamo. It was not a difficult examination, being untinctured by suspicion. The distorted remains of Holroyd, which the electrician removed from the machine, were hastily covered by the porter with a coffee-stained tablecloth. Somebody, by a happy inspiration, fetched a medical man. The expert was chiefly anxious to get the machine at work again, for seven or eight trains had stopped midway in the stuffy tunnels of the electric railway. Azumazi answering or misunderstanding the questions of the people who had, by authority or impudence, come into the shed was presently sent back to the stoke-hole by the scientific manager. Of course, a crowd collected outside the gates of the yard. A crowd, for no known reason, always hovers for a day or two near the scene of a sudden death in London. Two or three reporters percolated somehow into the engine-shed, and one even got to a Zuma e. But the scientific expert cleared them out again, being himself an amateur journalist. Presently the body was carried away, and public interest departed with it. Azumazi remained very quietly at his furnace, seeing over and over again in the coals a figure that wriggled violently and became still. An hour after the murder, to anyone coming into the shed, it would have looked exactly as if nothing remarkable had ever happened there. Peeping presently from his engine room, the black saw the Lord Dynamo, spin and whirl, beside his little brothers, and the driving wheels were beating round, and the steam in the pistons went thud, thud, exactly as it had been earlier in the evening. After all, from the mechanical point of view, it had been a most insignificant incident, the mere temporary deflection of a current. But now, the slender form and slender shadow of the scientific manager replaced the sturdy outline of Holroyd, traveling up and down the lane of light upon the vibrating floor under the straps between the engines and the dynamos have i not served my lord said azumazi inaudibly from his shadow and the note of the great dynamo rang out full and clear as he looked at the big whirling mechanism the strange fascination of it that had been a little in abeyance since holroyd's death resumed its sway never had hazuma z seen a man killed so swiftly and pitilessly the big humming machine had slain its victim without wavering for a second from its steady beating it was indeed a mighty god the unconscious scientific manager stood with his back to him scribbling on a piece of paper his shadow lay at the foot of the monster was the lord dynamo still hungry His servant was ready. Azuma Z made a stealthy step forward, then stopped. The scientific manager suddenly ceased his writing, walked down the shed to the endmost of the dynamos, and began to examine the brushes. Azuma Z hesitated, and then slipped across noiselessly into the shadow by the switch. There he waited. Presently the manager's footsteps could be heard returning. He stopped in his old position, unconscious of the stoker crouching ten feet away from him. Then the big dynamo suddenly fizzled, and in another moment Azuma Zi had sprung out of the darkness upon him. First the scientific manager was gripped round the body and swung towards the big dynamo. Then, kicking with his knee and forcing his antagonist's head down with his hands, he loosened the grip on his waist and swung round away from the machine. Then the black grasped him again, putting a curly head against his chest, and they swayed and panted, as it seemed for an age or so. Then the scientific manager was impelled to catch a black ear in his teeth and bite furiously. The black yelled hideously. They rolled over on the floor, and the black, who had apparently slipped from the vice of the teeth or parted with some ear, the scientific manager wondered which at the time tried to throttle him. The scientific manager was making some ineffectual efforts to claw something with his hands and to kick when the welcome sound of quick footsteps sounded on the floor. The next moment Azuma had left him and darted towards the big dynamo. There was a splutter amid the roar. The officer of the company who had entered stood staring as azuma z caught the naked terminals in his hands gave one horrible convulsion and then hung motionless from the machine his face violently distorted i'm jolly glad you came in when you did said the scientific manager still sitting on the floor he looked at the still quivering figure it is not a nice death to die apparently but it is quick the official was still staring at the body he was a man of slow apprehension." There was a pause. The scientific manager got up on his feet, rather awkwardly. He ran his fingers along his collar thoughtfully, and moved his head to and fro several times. "'Poor Holroyd! I see you now.' Then, almost mechanically, he went towards the switch in the shadow, and turned the current into the railway circuit again. As he did so. The singed body loosened its grip upon the machine, and fell forward on its face. The core of the dynamo roared out loud and clear, and the armature beat the air. So ended prematurely the worship of the dynamo deity, perhaps the most short-lived of all religions, yet with all it could at least boast, a martyrdom and a human sacrifice. The End of Section eight Section nine of the Country of the Blind and Other Stories by HG Wells. This Librivox recording is in the public domain, read by Peter Yearsley. The Moth Probably you have heard of Hapley, not WT Hapley, the Sun, but the Celebrated Hapley the haply of periplaneta haplyia, Hapley the entomologist. If so, you know at least of the great feud between Hapley and Professor Porkins, though certain of its consequences may be new to you. For those who have not, a word or two of explanation is necessary, which the idle reader may go over with a glancing eye if his indolence so incline him. It is amazing how very widely diffused is the ignorance of such really important matters as this Hapley-Porkins feud. Those epoch-making controversies, again, that have convulsed the geological society, are, I verily believe, almost entirely unknown outside the fellowship of that body. I have heard men of fair general education even refer to the great scenes at these meetings as vestry-meeting squabbles yet the great hate of the english and scotch geologists has lasted now half a century and has left deep and abundant marks upon the body of the science and this haply Porkin's business though perhaps a more personal affair stirred passions as profound if not profounder your common man has no conception of the zeal that animates a scientific investigator the fury of contradiction you can arouse in him it is the odium theologicum in a new form there are men for instance who would gladly burn professor ray lancaster at smithfield for his treatment of the mollusca in the encyclopedia that fantastic extension of the cephalopods to cover the pteropods but i wander from hapley and pawkins it began years and years ago with the revision of the microlepidoptera whatever these may be by Porkins, in which he extinguished a new species created by hapley hapley who was always quarrelsome replied by a stinging impeachment of the entire classification of Porkins. Footnote. Remarks on a Recent Revision of Microlepidoptera, Quarterly Journal, Entomological Society, 1863. End footnote. Porkins, in his rejoinder, suggested that Hapley's microscope was as defective as his power of observation, and called him an irresponsible meddler. Hapley was not a professor at that time. Footnote. Rejoinder to certain remarks etc ibidem 1864 and footnote Haply in his retort spoke of blundering collectors and described as if inadvertently porkin's revision as a miracle of ineptitude footnote further remarks etc ibidem and footnote it was war to the knife However, it would scarcely interest the reader to detail how these two great men quarrelled, and how the split between them widened until, from the microlepidoptera, they were at war upon every open question in entomology. There were memorable occasions. At times, the Royal Entomological Society meetings resembled nothing so much as the Chamber of Deputies. On the whole, I fancy Porkins was nearer the truth than Hapley, but Hapley was skilful with his rhetoric, had a turn for ridicule rare in a scientific man, was endowed with vast energy, and had a fine sense of injury in the matter of the extinguished species, while Porkins was a man of dull presence, prosy of speech, in shape not unlike a water barrel over conscientious with testimonials and suspected of jobbing museum appointments so the young men gathered round haply and applauded him it was a long struggle vicious from the beginning and growing at last to pitiless antagonism the successive turns of fortune now an advantage to one side and now to another now haply tormented by some success of Porkins and now, Porkins, outshone by Hapley, belong rather to the history of entomology than to this story. But in 1891, Porkins, whose health had been bad for some time, published some work upon the mesoblast of the death's head moth. What the mesoblast of the death's head moth may be does not matter a rap in this story. But the work was far below his usual standard, and gave haply an opening he had coveted for years. He must have worked night and day to make the most of his advantage. In an elaborate critique he rent Porkins to tatters. One can fancy the man's disordered black hair and his queer dark eyes flashing as he went for his antagonist, and Pawkins made a reply halting ineffectual with painful gaps of silence and yet malignant there was no mistaking his will to wound hapley nor his incapacity to do it but few of those who heard him i was absent from that meeting realized how ill the man was hapley got his opponent down and meant to finish him he followed with a simply brutal attack upon pawkins in the form of a paper upon the development of moths in general a paper showing evidence of a most extraordinary amount of mental labor, and yet couched in a violently controversial tone. Violent as it was, an editorial note witnesses that it was modified. It must have covered Porkins with shame and confusion of face. It left no loophole. It was murderous in argument, and utterly contemptuous in tone an awful thing for the declining years of a man's career. The world of entomologists waited breathlessly for the rejoinder from Porkins. He would try one, for Porkins had always been game, but when it came it surprised them, for the rejoinder of Porkins was to catch influenza, proceed to pneumonia, and die. It was, perhaps, as effectual a reply as he could make under the circumstances, and largely turned the current of feeling against Hapley. The very people who had most gleefully cheered on those gladiators became serious at the consequence. There could be no reasonable doubt the fret of the defeat had contributed to the death of Porkins. There was a limit even to scientific controversy said serious people. Another crushing attack was already in the press and appeared on the day before the funeral. I don't think Hapley exerted himself to stop it. People remembered how Hapley had hounded down his rival and forgot that rival's defects. Scathing satire reads ill over fresh mould the thing provoked comment in the daily papers this it was that made me think that you had probably heard of Hapley and this controversy but as i have already remarked scientific workers live very much in a world of their own half the people i dare say who go along piccadilly to the academy every year could not tell you where the learned societies abide many even think that research is a kind of happy family cage in which all kinds of men lie down together in peace in his private thoughts Hapley could not forgive pawkins for dying in the first place it was a mean dodge to escape the absolute pulverization Hapley had in hand for him and in the second it left Hapley's mind with a queer gap in it for twenty years he had worked hard sometimes far into the night and seven days a week with microscope scalpel collecting net and pen and almost entirely with reference to pawkins the european reputation he had won had come as an incident in that great antipathy he had gradually worked up to a climax in this last controversy it had killed pawkins but it had also thrown happily out of gear so to speak and his doctor advised him to give up work for a time and rest so Hapley went down into a quiet village in Kent, and thought day and night of Porkins, and good things it was now impossible to say about him. At last, haply began to realize in what direction the preoccupation tended. He determined to make a fight for it, and started by trying to read novels. But he could not get his mind off Porkins, white in the face, and making his last speech. Every sentence a beautiful opening for Hapley. He turned to fiction, and found it had no grip on him. He read the Island Night's Entertainments, until his sense of causation was shocked beyond endurance by the bottle imp. Then he went to Kipling, and found he proved nothing besides being irreverent and vulgar. These scientific people have their limitations. Then unhappily he tried Besant's Inner House, and the opening chapter set his mind upon learned societies and Porkins at once. So Hapley turned to chess, and found it a little more soothing. He soon mastered the moves and the chief gambits and commoner closing positions, and began to beat the vicar. But then the cylindrical contours of the opposite king began to resemble Porkins, standing up and gasping ineffectually against checkmate, and happily decided to give up chess. Perhaps the study of some new branch of science would, after all, be better diversion. The best rest is change of occupation, happily determined to plunge at diatoms, and had one of his smaller microscopes and Halibut's monograph sent down from London. He thought that, perhaps, if he could get up a vigorous quarrel with Halibut, he might be able to begin life afresh and forget Porkins, and very soon he was hard at work, in his habitual strenuous fashion, at these microscopic denizens of the wayside pool. It was on the third day of the diatoms that Hapley became aware of a novel addition to the local fauna. He was working late at the microscope, and the only light in the room was the brilliant little lamp with the special form of green shade. Like all experienced microscopists, he kept both eyes open. It is the only way to avoid excessive fatigue. One eye was over the instrument, and bright and distinct before that was the circular field of the microscope, across which a brown diatom was slowly moving. With the other eye, happily saw as it were without seeing he was only dimly conscious of the brass side of the instrument the illuminated part of the tablecloth a sheet of note paper the foot of the lamp and the darkened room beyond suddenly his attention drifted from one eye to the other the tablecloth was of the material called tapestry by shopmen, and rather brightly coloured the pattern was in gold with a small amount of crimson and pale blue upon a greyish ground. At one point the pattern seemed displaced, and there was a vibrating movement of the colours at this point. Hapley suddenly moved his head back, and looked with both eyes. His mouth fell open with astonishment. It was a large moth or butterfly, its wings spread in butterfly fashion. It was strange it should be in the room at all, for the windows were closed, Strange that it should not have attracted his attention when fluttering to its present position. Strange that it should match the tablecloth. Stranger far, that to him, Hapley, the great entomologist, it was altogether unknown. There was no delusion. It was crawling slowly towards the foot of the lamp. "'New genus, by heavens, and in England!' said Hapley, staring." Then he suddenly thought of Porkins. Nothing would have maddened Porkins more, and Porkins was dead. Something about the head and body of the insect became singularly suggestive of Porkins, just as the Chess King had been. "'Confound, Porkins!' said Hapley. "'But I must catch this!' And looking round him for some means of capturing the moth, he rose slowly out of his chair. Suddenly the insect rose, struck the edge of the lampshade, haply heard the ping, and vanished into the shadow. In a moment haply had whipped off the shade so that the whole room was illuminated. The thing had disappeared, but soon his practiced eye detected it upon the wallpaper near the door. He went towards it, poising the lampshade for capture. Before he was within striking distance, however, it had risen and was fluttering round the room after the fashion of its kind it flew with sudden starts and turns seeming to vanish here and reappear there once haply, struck and missed then again the third time he hit his microscope the instrument swayed struck and overturned the lamp and fell noisily upon the floor the lamp turned over on the table and very luckily went out Haply was left in the dark with a start He felt the strange moth blunder into his face. It was maddening. He had no lights. If he opened the door of the room, the thing would get away. In the darkness he saw Porkins quite distinctly laughing at him. Porkins had ever an oily laugh. He swore furiously and stamped his foot on the floor. There was a timid rapping at the door. Then it opened, perhaps a foot, and very slowly. The alarmed face of the landlady appeared behind a pink candle flame. She wore a nightcap over her grey hair and had some purple garment over her shoulders. What was that fearful smash? She said. Has anything? The strange moth appeared fluttering about the chink of the door. Shut that door! said Hapley and suddenly rushed at her. The door slammed hastily. Hapley was left alone in the dark. Then, In the pause he heard his landlady scuttle upstairs, lock her door, and drag something heavy across the room and put against it. It became evident to Hapley that his conduct and appearance had been strange and alarming. Confound the moth! And Porkins! However, it was a pity to lose the moth now. He felt his way into the hall, and found the matches after sending his hat down upon the floor with a noise like a drum with the lighted candle he returned to the sitting-room no moth was to be seen yet once for a moment it seemed that the thing was fluttering around his head happily very suddenly decided to give up the moth and go to bed but he was excited all night long his sleep was broken by dreams of the moth pawkins and his landlady Twice in the night, he turned out and soused his head in cold water. One thing was very clear to him. His landlady could not possibly understand about the strange moth, especially as he had failed to catch it. No one but an entomologist would understand quite how he felt. She was probably frightened at his behavior, and yet he failed to see how he could explain it he decided to say nothing further about the events of last night. After breakfast he saw her in her garden, and decided to go out and talk to reassure her. He talked to her about beans and potatoes, bees, caterpillars, and the price of fruit. She replied in her usual manner, but she looked at him a little suspiciously, and kept walking as he walked so that there was always a bed of flowers, or a row of beans, or something of that sort, between them. After a while he began to feel singularly irritated at this, and, to conceal his vexation, went indoors and presently went out for a walk. The moth, or butterfly, trailing an odd flavor of porkins with it, kept coming into that walk, though he did his best to keep his mind off it once he saw it quite distinctly with its wings flattened out upon the old stone wall that runs along the west side of the park but going up to it he found it was only two lumps of grey and yellow lichen this said haply is the reverse of mimicry instead of a butterfly looking like a stone here is a stone looking like a butterfly once something hovered and fluttered round his head but by an effort of will he drove that impression out of his mind again in the afternoon Hapley called upon the vicar and argued with him upon theological questions they sat in the little arbour covered with briar and smoked as they wrangled look at that moth said Hapley suddenly pointing to the edge of the wooden table where said the vicar you don't see a moth on the edge of the table there said Hapley certainly not said the vicar hapley was thunderstruck he gasped the vicar was staring at him clearly the man saw nothing the eye of faith is no better than the eye of science said hapley awkwardly i don't see your point said the vicar thinking it was part of the argument that night hapley found the moth crawling over his counterpane he sat on the edge of the bed in his shirt sleeves, and reasoned with himself. Was it pure hallucination? He knew he was slipping, and he battled for his sanity with the same silent energy he had formerly displayed against Porkins, so persistent is mental habit that he felt as if it were still a struggle with Porkins. He was well versed in psychology, He knew that such visual illusions do come as a result of mental strain, but the point was, he did not only see the moth, he had heard it when it touched the edge of the lampshade, and afterwards when it hit against the wall, and he had felt it strike his face in the dark. He looked at it. It was not at all dreamlike, but perfectly clear and solid-looking in the candlelight. He saw the hairy body, and the short feathery antennae, the jointed legs, even a place where the down was rubbed from the wing. He suddenly felt angry with himself for being afraid of a little insect. His landlady had got the servant to sleep with her that night, because she was afraid to be alone. In addition, she had locked the door, and put the chest of drawers against it. They listened, and talked in whispers after they had gone to bed, but nothing occurred to alarm them. About eleven they had ventured to put the candle out, and had both dozed off to sleep. They woke up with a start, and sat up in bed, listening in the darkness. Then they heard slippered feet going to and fro in Hapley's room. A chair was overturned, and there was a violent dab at the wall. Then a china mantle ornament smashed upon the fender. Suddenly the door of the room opened, and they heard him upon the landing. They clung to one another, listening. He seemed to be dancing upon the staircase. Now he would go down three or four stairs quickly, then up again, then hurry down into the hall. They heard the umbrella stand go over and the fan light break. Then the bolt shot and the chain rattled. He was opening the door. They hurried to the window. It was a dim, grey night, An almost unbroken sheet of watery cloud was sweeping across the moon, and the hedge and trees in front of the house were black against the pale roadway. They saw Hapley, looking like a ghost in his shirt and white trousers, running to and fro in the road and beating the air. Now he would stop. Now he would dart very rapidly at something invisible. Now he would move upon it with stealthy strides. At last he went out of sight up the road, towards the down. Then, while they argued who should go down and lock the door, he returned. He was walking very fast, and he came straight into the house, closed the door carefully, and went quietly up to his bedroom. Then everything was silent. "'Mrs. Colville,' said happily, calling down the staircase next morning, "'I hope I did not alarm you last night.' "'You may well ask that,' said Mrs. Colville. "'The fact is, I am a sleepwalker, and the last two nights I have been without my sleeping mixture. There is nothing to be alarmed about, really. I am sorry I made such an ass of myself. I will go over the down to Shoreham, and get some stuff to make me sleep soundly. I ought to have done that yesterday.' But halfway over the down, by the chalk-pits, the moth came upon haply again. He went on, trying to keep his mind upon chess problems, but it was no good. The thing fluttered into his face, and he struck at it with his hat in self-defense. Then rage, the old rage, the rage he had so often felt against Porkins, came upon him again. He went on, leaping and striking at the eddying insect. Suddenly he trod on nothing and fell headlong. There was a gap in his sensations and haply found himself sitting on the heap of flints in front of the opening of the chalk pits with a leg twisted back under him the strange moth was still fluttering round his head he struck at it with his hand and turning his head saw two men approaching him one was the village doctor it occurred to haply that this was lucky then it came into his mind with extraordinary vividness THAT NO ONE WOULD EVER BE ABLE TO SEE THE STRANGE MOTH EXCEPT HIMSELF, AND THAT IT BEHOVED HIM TO KEEP SILENT ABOUT IT. LATE THAT NIGHT, HOWEVER, AFTER HIS BROKEN LEG WAS SET, HE WAS FEVERISH AND FORGOT HIS SELF-RESTRAINT. HE WAS LYING FLAT ON HIS BED, AND HE BEGAN TO RUN HIS EYES ROUND THE ROOM TO SEE IF THE MOTH WAS STILL ABOUT. HE TRIED NOT TO DO THIS, BUT IT WAS NO GOOD. He soon caught sight of the thing resting close to his hand by the nightlight on the green tablecloth. The wings quivered. With a sudden wave of anger, he smote at it with his fist, and the nurse woke up with a shriek. He had missed it. "'That moth!' he said, and then, "'It was fancy! Nothing!' All the time he could see quite clearly the insect going round the cornice and darting across the room and he could also see that the nurse saw nothing of it and looked at him strangely. He must keep himself in hand. He knew he was a lost man if he did not keep himself in hand. But as the night waned, the fever grew upon him, and the very dread he had of seeing the moth made him see it. About five, just as the dawn was grey, He tried to get out of bed and catch it, though his leg was afire with pain. The nurse had to struggle with him. On account of this, they tied him down to the bed. At this, the moth grew bolder, and once he felt it settle in his hair. Then because he struck out violently with his arms, they tied these also. At this, the moth came and crawled over his face, and haply wept, swore, screamed, prayed for them to take it off him unavailingly. The doctor was a blockhead, a just-qualified general practitioner, and quite ignorant of mental science. He simply said there was no moth. Had he possessed the wit, he might still, perhaps, have saved haply from his fate, by entering into his delusion and covering his face with gauze, as he prayed might be done. But, as I say, The doctor was a blockhead, and until the leg was healed, Hapley was kept tied to his bed, and with the imaginary moth crawling over him. It never left him while he was awake, and it grew to a monster in his dreams. While he was awake, he longed for sleep, and from sleep he awoke screaming. So now, Hapley is spending the remainder of his days in a padded room. Worried by a moth that no one else can see, the asylum doctor calls it hallucination, but haply, when he is in his easier mood and can talk, says it is the ghost of Porkins and consequently a unique specimen, and well worth the trouble of catching the end of section nine. section 10 of the country of the blind and other stories by hg wells this librivox recording is in the public domain the treasure in the forest the canoe was now approaching the land the bay opened out and a gap in the white surf of the reef marked where the little river ran out to the sea the thicker and deeper green of the virgin forest showed its course down the distant hill slope The forest here came close to the beach. Far beyond, dim and almost cloud-like in texture, rose the mountains like suddenly frozen waves. The sea was still, save for an almost imperceptible swell. The sky blazed. The man with the carved paddle stopped. "'He should be somewhere here,' he said. He shipped the paddle and held his arms out straight before him. The other man had been in the forepart of the canoe, closely scrutinizing the land. He had a sheet of yellow paper on his knee. "'Come and look at this, Evans,' he said. Both men spoke in low tones, and their lips were hard and dry. The man called Evans came swaying along the canoe, until he could look over his companion's shoulder. The paper had the appearance of a rough map. By much folding it was creased and worn to the pitch of separation, and the second man held the discoloured fragments together where they had parted. On it, one could dimly make out, in almost obliterated pencil, the outline of the bay. "'Here,' said Evans, "'is the reef, and here is the gap.' He ran his thumbnail over the chart. "'This curved and twisting line is the river. I could do with a drink now. And this star is the place.' "'You see this dotted line?' said the man with the map. "'It is a straight line, and runs from the opening of the reef to a clump of palm trees. "'The star comes just where it cuts the river. "'We must mark the place as we go into the lagoon.' "'It's queer,' said Evans, after a pause. "'What these little marks down here are for. "'It looks like the plan of a house or something. "'But what all these dashes pointing this way and that may mean?' i can't get a notion and what's the writing chinese said the man with the map of course he was a chinese said evans they all were said the man with the map they both sat for some minutes staring at the land while the canoe drifted slowly then evans looked towards the paddle your turn with the paddle now hooker said he and his companion quietly folded up his map put it in his pocket passed evans carefully and began to paddle his movements were languid like those of a man whose strength was nearly exhausted evans sat with his eyes half closed watching the frothy breakwater of the coral creep nearer and nearer the sky was like a furnace for the sun was near the zenith though they were so near the treasure he did not feel the exaltation he had anticipated The intense excitement of the struggle for the plan and the long night voyage from the mainland in the unprovisioned canoe had, to use his own expression, taken it out of him. He tried to arouse himself by directing his mind to the ingots the Chinamen had spoken of, but it would not rest there. It came back headlong to the thought of sweet water rippling in the river and to the almost unendurable dryness of his lips and throat. The rhythmic wash of the sea upon the reef was becoming audible now, and it had a pleasant sound in his ears. The water washed along the side of the canoe, and the paddle dripped between each stroke. Presently he began to doze. He was still dimply conscious of the island, but a queer dream texture interwove with his sensations. Once again it was the night when he and Hooker had hit upon the Chinaman's secret. He saw the moonlit trees, the little fire burning, and the black figures of the three Chinamen, silvered on one side by moonlight, and on the other glowing from the firelight, and heard them talking together in pidgin English, for they came from different provinces. Hooker had caught the drift of their talk first, and had motioned to him to listen. Fragments of the conversation were inaudible, and fragments incomprehensible a spanish galleon from the philippines hopelessly aground and its treasure buried against the day of return lay in the background of the story a shipwrecked crew thinned by disease a quarrel or so and the needs of discipline and at last taking to their boats never to be heard of again then chang he only a year since wandering ashore had happened upon the ingots hidden for two hundred years had deserted his junk and reburied them with infinite toil single-handed but very safe he laid great stress on the safety it was a secret of his now he wanted help to return and exhume them presently the little map fluttered and the voices sank a fine story for two stranded british wastrels to hear evans's dream shifted to the moment when he had chang he's pigtail in his hand the life of a chinaman is scarcely sacred like a european's the cunning little face of chang he first keen and furious like a startled snake and then fearful treacherous and pitiful became overwhelmingly prominent in the dream at the end chang he had grinned a most incomprehensible and startling grin abruptly things became very unpleasant as they will do at times in dreams chang he gibbered and threatened him he saw in his dream heaps and heaps of gold and chang he intervening and struggling to hold him back from it he took chang he by the pigtail how big the yellow brute was and how he struggled and grinned he kept growing bigger too then the bright heaps of gold turned to a roaring furnace and a vast devil surprisingly like Chang-hee, but with a huge black tail, began to feed him with coals. They burnt his mouth horribly. Another devil was shouting his name. "'Evans! Evans, you sleepy fool!' Or was it Hooker?' He woke up. They were in the mouth of the lagoon. "'There are the three palm trees. It must be in a line with that clump of bushes,' said his companion. "'Mark that!' If we go to those bushes, and then strike into the bush in a straight line from here, we shall come to it when we come to the stream. They could see now where the mouth of the stream opened out. At the sight of it, Evans revived. Hurry up, man, he said. By heaven, I shall have to drink sea water." He gnawed his hand and stared at the gleam of silver among the rocks and green tangle. Presently, he turned almost fiercely upon Hooker. "'Give me the paddle,' he said. So they reached the river mouth. A little way up, Hooker took some water in the hollow of his hand, tasted it, and spat it out. A little further he tried again. "'This will do,' he said, and they began drinking eagerly. "'Curse this!' said Evans suddenly. "'It's too slow!' And, leaning dangerously over the forepart of the canoe, he began to suck up the water with his lips." presently they made an end of drinking and running the canoe into a little creek were about to land among the thick growth that overhung the water we shall have to scramble through this to the beach to find our bushes and get the line to the place said evans we had better paddle round said hooker so they pushed out again into the river and paddled back down it to the sea and along the shore to the place where the clump of bushes grew here they landed pulled the light canoe far up the beach, and then went up towards the edge of the jungle, until they could see the opening of the reef and the bushes in a straight line. Evans had taken a native implement out of the canoe. It was L-shaped, and the transverse piece was armed with polished stone. Hooker carried the paddle. "'It is straight now in this direction,' said he. "'We must push through this till we strike the stream. Then we must prospect.' They pushed through a close tangle of reeds, broad fronds, and young trees, and at first it was toilsome going, but very speedily the trees became larger, and the ground beneath them opened out. The blaze of the sunlight was replaced by insensible degrees, by cool shadow. The trees became at last vast pillars that rose up to a canopy of greenery far overhead. Dim white flowers hung from their stems and ropey creepers swung from tree to tree. The shadow deepened. On the ground, blotched fungi and a red-brown incrustation became frequent. Evans shivered. "'It seems almost cold here after the blaze outside.' "'I hope we are keeping to the straight,' said Hooker. Presently they saw, far ahead, a gap in the sombre darkness, where bright shafts of hot sunlight smote into the forest.' There also was brilliant green undergrowth and coloured flowers. Then they heard the rush of water. "'Here is the river. We should be close to it now,' said Hooker. The vegetation was thick by the river bank. Great plants, as yet unnamed, grew among the roots of the big trees and spread rosettes of huge green fans towards the strip of sky. Many flowers, and a creeper with shiny foliage, clung to the exposed stems. On the water of the broad, quiet pool, which the treasure-seekers now overlooked, there floated big oval leaves, and a waxen pinkish-white flower, not unlike a water-lily. Further, as the river bent away from them, the water suddenly frothed and became noisy in a rapid. "'Well,' said Evans, "'we have swerved a little from the strait,' said Hooker. That was to be expected.' he turned, and looked into the dim, cool shadows of the silent forest behind them. "'If we beat a little way up and down the stream, we should come to something.' "'You said,' began Evans. "'He said there was a heap of stones,' said Hooker. The two men looked at each other for a moment. "'Let us try a little downstream first, said Evans. They advanced slowly, looking curiously about them. Suddenly Evans stopped, What the devil's that?" he said. Hooker followed his finger. Something blue. he said. It had come into view as they topped the gentle swell of the ground. Then he began to distinguish what it was. He advanced suddenly with hasty steps, until the body that belonged to the limp hand and arm had become visible. His grip tightened on the implement he carried. The thing was the figure of a Chinaman lying on his face. The abandon of the pose was unmistakable. The two men drew closer together, and stood staring silently at this ominous dead body. It lay in a clear space among the trees. Nearby was a spade after the Chinese pattern, and further off lay a scattered heap of stones close to a freshly dug hole. "'Somebody has been here before,' said Hooker, clearing his throat. Then suddenly Evans began to swear and rave and stamp upon the ground. Hooker turned white but said nothing. He advanced towards the prostrate body. He saw the neck was puffed and purple, and the hands and ankles swollen. "'Pah!' he said, and suddenly turned away and went towards the excavation. He gave a cry of surprise. He shouted to Evans, who was following him slowly. "'You fool, it's all right. It's here still.' Then he turned again, and looked at the dead Chinaman, and then again at the hole. Evans hurried to the hole. Already half-exposed by the ill-fated wretch beside them, lay a number of dull yellow bars. He bent down in the hole, and, clearing off the soil with his bare hands, hastily pulled one of the heavy masses out. As he did so, a little thorn pricked his hand. He pulled the delicate spike out with his fingers and lifted the ingot. "'Only gold or lead could weigh like this,' he said exultantly. Hooker was still looking at the dead Chinaman. He was puzzled. "'He stole a march on his friends,' he said at last. "'He came here alone, and some poisonous snake has killed him. I wonder how he found the place?' Evans stood with the ingot in his hands. What did a dead Chinaman signify? We shall have to take this stuff to the mainland piecemeal and bury it there for a while. How shall we get it to the canoe? He took his jacket off and spread it on the ground and flung two or three ingots into it. Presently he found that another little thorn had punctured his skin. This is as much as we can carry, said he. Then suddenly, with a queer rush of irritation, what are you staring at hooker turned to him i can't stand him he nodded towards the corpse it's so like rubbish said evans all chinamen are alike hooker looked into his face i'm going to bury that anyhow before i lend a hand with this stuff don't be a fool hooker said evans let that mass of corruption bide hooker hesitated and then his eye went carefully over the brown soil about them. "'It scares me somehow,' he said. "'The thing is,' said Evans, what to do with these ingots? Shall we rebury them over here, or take them across the strait in the canoe?' Hooker thought. His puzzled gaze wandered among the tall tree-trunks and up into the remote sunlit greenery overhead. He shivered again as his eye rested upon the blue figure of the Chinaman. He stared searchingly among the grey depths between the trees. "'What's come to you, Hooker?' said Evans. "'Have you lost your wits?' "'Let's get the gold out of this place anyhow,' said Hooker. He took the ends of the collar of the coat in his hands, and Evans took the opposite corners, and they lifted the mass. "'Which way?' said Evans. "'To the canoe.' it's queer said evans when they had advanced only a few steps but my arms ache still with that paddling curse it he said but they ache i must rest they let the coat down evans's face was white and little drops of sweat stood out upon his forehead it's stuffy somehow in this forest then with an abrupt transition to unreasonable anger what is the good of waiting here all the day? Lend a hand, I say. You have done nothing but moon since we saw the dead Chinaman." Hooker was looking steadfastly at his companion's face. He helped raise the coat bearing the ingots, and they went forward perhaps a hundred yards in silence. Evans began to breathe heavily. "'Can't you speak?' he said. "'What's the matter with you?' said Hooker. Evans stumbled and then with a sudden curse flung the coat from him. He stood for a moment staring at Hooker, and then, with a groan, clutched at his own throat. "'Don't come near me,' he said, and went and leant against a tree, then in a steadier voice, "'I'll be better in a minute.' Presently his grip upon the trunk loosened, and he slipped slowly down the stem of the tree until he was a crumpled heap at its foot his hands were clenched convulsively his face became distorted with pain hooker approached him don't touch me don't touch me said evans in a stifled voice put the gold back on the coat can't i do anything for you said hooker put the gold back on the coat as hooker handled the ingots he felt a little prick on the ball of his thumb he looked at his hand and saw a slender thorn perhaps two inches in length. Evans gave an inarticulate cry and rolled over. Hooker's jaw dropped. He stared at the thorn for a moment with dilated eyes. Then he looked at Evans, who was now crumpled together on the ground, his back bending and straightening spasmodically. Then he looked through the pillars of the trees and network of creeper stems, to where, in the dim gray shadow, The blue-clad body of the Chinaman was still indistinctly visible. He thought of the little dashes in the corner of the plan, and in a moment he understood. "'God help me,' he said, for the thorns were similar to those the dyaks poison and use in their blowing tubes. He understood now what Chang He's assurance of the safety of his treasure meant. He understood that grin now. "'Evans!' he cried, but Evans was silent and motionless, save for a horrible spasmodic twitching of his limbs. A profound silence brooded over the forest. Then Hooker began to suck furiously at the little pink spot on the ball of his thumb, sucking for dear life. Presently he felt a strange aching pain in his arms and shoulders, and his fingers seemed difficult to bend then he knew that sucking was no good. Abruptly, he stopped, and sitting down by the pile of ingots, and, resting his chin upon his hands and his elbows upon his knees, stared at the distorted but still quivering body of his companion, Chang He's grin grew into his mind again. The dull pain spread towards his throat and grew slowly in intensity. Far above him, A faint breeze stirred the greenery and the white petals of some unknown flower came floating down through the gloom. End of section ten, section eleven of the country of the blind and other stories by h g wells. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Peter Yearsley. THE STORY OF THE LATE MR. Elvisham. I set this story down, not expecting it will be believed, but, if possible, to prepare a way of escape for the next victim. He, perhaps, may profit by my misfortune. My own case, I know, is hopeless, and I am now in some measure prepared to meet my fate. My name is Edward George Eden. I was born at Trentham in Staffordshire my father being employed in the gardens there. I lost my mother when I was three years old, and my father when I was five, my uncle George Eden then adopting me as his own son. He was a single man, self-educated, and well-known in Birmingham as an enterprising journalist. He educated me generously, fired my ambition to succeed in the world, and at his death, which happened four years ago, left me his entire fortune a matter of about five hundred pounds after all outgoing charges were paid i was then eighteen he advised me in his will to expend the money in completing my education i had already chosen the profession of medicine and through his posthumous generosity and my good fortune in a scholarship competition i became a medical student at university college london at the time of the beginning of my story i lodged at eleven a university street in a little upper room, very shabbily furnished and draughty, overlooking the back of Shulbred's premises. I used this little room both to live in and sleep in, because I was anxious to eke out my means to the very last shillings worth. I was taking a pair of shoes to be mended at a shop in the Tottenham Court Road, when I first encountered the little old man with the yellow face, with whom my life has now become so inextricably entangled. He was standing on the curb and staring at the number on the door, in a doubtful way, as I opened it. His eyes—they were dull grey eyes and reddish under the rims—fell to my face, and his countenance immediately assumed an expression of corrugated amiability. "'You come,' he said, "'apt to the moment. I had forgotten the number of your house. How do you do, Mr. Eden?' I was a little astonished at his familiar address, for I had never set eyes on the man before. I was a little annoyed, too, at his catching me with my boots under my arm. He noticed my lack of cordiality. "'Wonder who the deuce I am, eh? A friend, let me assure you, I have seen you before, though you haven't seen me. Is there anywhere where I can talk to you?' I hesitated. The shabbiness of my room upstairs was not a matter for every stranger. "'Perhaps,' said I, "'we might walk down the street. I'm unfortunately prevented.' My gesture explained the sentence before I had spoken it. "'The very thing,' he said, and faced this way and then that. "'The street? Which way shall we go?' I slipped my boots down in the passage. "'Look here,' he said abruptly this business of mine is a rigmarole come and lunch with me mr eden i'm an old man a very old man and not good at explanations and what with my piping voice and the clatter of the traffic he laid a persuasive skinny hand that trembled a little upon my arm i was not so old that an old man might not treat me to a lunch Yet, at the same time, I was not altogether pleased by this abrupt invitation. "'I had rather,' I began. "'But I had rather,' he said, catching me up. "'And a certain civility is surely due to my grey hairs.' And so I consented and went with him. He took me to Blavitiski's. I had to walk slowly to accommodate myself to his pace, and over such a lunch as I had never tasted before he fended off my leading question, and I took a better note of his appearance. His clean-shaven face was lean and wrinkled, his shrivelled lips fell over a set of false teeth, and his white hair was thin and rather long. He seemed small to me, though indeed most people seemed small to me, and his shoulders were rounded and bent, and watching him, I could not help but observe that he too was taking note of me running his eyes with a curious touch of greed in them over me from my broad shoulders to my sun-tanned hands and up to my freckled face again and now said he as we lit our cigarettes i must tell you of the business in hand i must tell you then that i am an old man a very old man he paused momentarily and it happens that i have money that i must presently be leaving and never a child have i to leave it to i thought of the confidence trick and resolved i would be on the alert for the vestiges of my five hundred pounds he proceeded to enlarge on his loneliness and the trouble he had to find a proper disposition of his money I have weighed this plan and that plan, charities, institutions, and scholarships, and libraries, and I have come to this conclusion at last," he fixed his eyes on my face, "'that I will find some young fellow ambitious, pure-minded, and poor, healthy in body and healthy in mind, and, in short, make him my heir, give him all that I have,' he repeated, give him all that i have so that he will suddenly be lifted out of all the trouble and struggle in which his sympathies have been educated to freedom and influence i tried to seem disinterested with a transparent hypocrisy i said and uh, you want my help my professional services maybe to find that person he smiled and looked at me over his cigarette and i laughed at his quiet exposure of my modest pretence what a career such a man might have said he it fills me with envy to think how i have accumulated that another man may spend but there are conditions of course burdens to be imposed he must for instance take my name you cannot expect everything without some return and i must go into all the circumstances of his life before i can accept him he must be sound i must know his heredity how his parents and grandparents died have the strictest inquiries made into his private morals this modified my secret congratulations a little and do i understand said i that i yes he said almost fiercely you you i answered never a word my imagination was dancing wildly my innate skepticism was useless to modify its transports there was not a particle of gratitude in my mind i did not know what to say nor how to say it but why me in particular i said at last he had chanced to hear of me from professor haslar he said as a typically sound and sane young man and he wished, as far as possible, to leave his money where health and integrity were assured. That was my first meeting with the little old man. He was mysterious about himself. He would not give his name yet, he said, and after I had answered some questions of his, he left me at the Blavitisky portal. I noticed that he drew a handful of gold coins from his pocket when it came to paying for the lunch. His insistence upon bodily health was curious. In accordance with an arrangement we had made, I applied that day for a life policy in the Loyal Insurance Company for a large sum, and I was exhaustively overhauled by the medical advisers of that company in the subsequent week. Even that did not satisfy him, and he insisted I must be re-examined by the great Dr. Henderson. It was Friday, in Whitson Week, before he came to a decision. He called me down quite late in the evening, nearly nine it was, from cramming chemical equations for my preliminary scientific examination. He was standing in the passage under the feeble gas lamp, and his face was a grotesque interplay of shadows. He seemed more bowed than when I had first seen him, and his cheeks had sunk in a little. His voice shook with emotion. "'Everything is satisfactory, Mr. Eden,' he said. "'Everything is quite—' quite satisfactory and this night of all nights you must dine with me and celebrate your accession he was interrupted by a cough you won't have long to wait either he said wiping his handkerchief across his lips and gripping my hand with his long bony claw that was disengaged certainly not very long to wait we went into the street and called a cab i remember every incident of that drive vividly—the swift, easy motion, the vivid contrast of gas and oil and electric light, the crowds of people in the streets, the place in Regent Street to which we went, and the sumptuous dinner we were served with there. I was disconcerted at first by the well-dressed waiter's glances at my rough clothes, bothered by the stones of the olives. But as the champagne warmed my blood my confidence revived at first the old man talked of himself he had already told me his name in the cab he was egbert elversham the great philosopher whose name i had known since i was a lad at school it seemed incredible to me that this man whose intelligence had so early dominated mine this great abstraction should suddenly realize itself as this decrepit Familiar figure. I dare say every young fellow who has suddenly fallen among celebrities has felt something of my disappointment. He told me now of the future that the feeble streams of his life would presently leave dry for me houses, copyrights, investments. I had never suspected that philosophers were so rich. He watched me drink and eat with a touch of envy what a capacity for living you have he said and then with a sigh a sigh of relief i could have thought it it will not be long ay said i my head swimming now with champagne i have a future perhaps of a passing agreeable sort thanks to you i shall now have the honour of your name but you have a past such a past as is worth all my future He shook his head, and smiled, as I thought, with half-sad appreciation of my flattering admiration. "'That future,' he said, "'would you, in truth, change it?' The waiter came with liqueurs. "'You'll not, perhaps, mind taking my name, taking my position? But would you, indeed, willingly take my years?' "'With your achievements,' said I gallantly. He smiled again. "'Kummel, both,' he said to the waiter, and turned his attention to a little paper packet he had taken from his pocket. "'This hour,' said he, "'this after-dinner hour is the hour of small things. Here is a scrap of my unpublished wisdom.' He opened the packet with his shaking yellow fingers, And showed a little pinkish powder on the paper this said he well you must guess what it is but kummel put but a dash of this powder in it is himmel his large grayish eyes watched mine with an inscrutable expression it was a bit of a shock to me to find this great teacher gave his mind to the flavor of liqueurs however I feigned an interest in his weakness, for I was drunk enough for such small sycophancy. He parted the powder between the little glasses, and, rising suddenly, with a strange unexpected dignity, held out his hand towards me. I imitated his action, and the glasses rang. "'To a quick succession,' said he, and raised his glass towards his lips. "'Not that,' I said hastily not that he paused with the liqueur at the level of his chin and his eyes blazing into mine to a long life said i he hesitated to a long life said he with a sudden bark of laughter and with eyes fixed on one another we tilted the little glasses his eyes looked straight into mine and as i drained the stuff off I felt a curiously intense sensation. The first touch of it set my brain in a furious tumult. I seemed to feel an actual physical stirring in my skull, and a seething humming filled my ears. I did not notice the flavor in my mouth, the aroma that filled my throat. I saw only the gray intensity of his gaze that burst into mine, the draught, the mental confusion. The noise and stirring in my head seemed to last an interminable time. Curious, vague impressions of half-forgotten things danced and vanished on the edge of my consciousness. At last he broke the spell. With a sudden, explosive sigh, he put down his glass. "'Well,' he said, "'it's glorious,' said I, though I had not tasted the stuff. My head was spinning. I sat down my brain was chaos then my perception grew clear and minute as though i saw things in a concave mirror his manner seemed to have changed into something nervous and hasty he pulled out his watch and grimaced at it eleven seven and tonight i must 725 mortelou i must go at once he called for the bill and struggled with his coat officious waiters came to our assistance in another moment i was wishing him good-bye over the apron of a cab and still with an absurd feeling of minute distinctness as though how can i express it i not only saw but felt through an inverted opera glass that stuff he said he put his hand to his forehead i ought not to have given it to you it will make your head split tomorrow wait a minute here he handed me out a little flat thing like a sidelets powder take that in water as you're going to bed the other thing was a drug not till you're ready to go to bed mind it will clear your head that's all one more shake futurus i gripped his shrivelled claw goodbye he said and by the droop of his eyelids i judged he too was a little under the influence of that brain-twisting cordial. He recollected something else with a start, felt in his breast pocket, and produced another packet, this time a cylinder the size and shape of a shaving-stick. "'Here,' said he, "'I'd almost forgotten. Don't open this until I come tomorrow, but take it now.' It was so heavy that I well-nigh dropped it. "'All right,' said I, and he grinned at me through the cab window, as the cabman flicked his horse into wakefulness. It was a white packet he had given me, with red seals at either end along its edge. "'If this isn't money,' said I, "'it's platinum or lead.' I stuck it with elaborate care into my pocket, and with a whirling brain walked home through the Regent Street loiterers and the dark back streets beyond Portland Road. I remember the sensations of that walk very vividly, strange as they were i was still so far myself that i could notice my strange mental state and wonder whether this stuff i had had was opium a drug beyond my experience it is hard now to describe the peculiarity of my mental strangeness mental doubling vaguely expresses it as i was walking up regent street i found in my mind a queer persuasion that it was waterloo station and had an odd impulse to get into the polytechnic as a man might get into a train i put a knuckle in my eye and it was regent street how can i express it you see a skilful actor looking quietly at you he pulls a grimace and lo another person is it too extravagant if i tell you that it seemed to me as if regent street had for the moment done that then being persuaded it was regent street again I was oddly muddled about some fantastic reminiscences that cropped up. Thirty years ago, thought I, it was here that I quarrelled with my brother. Then I burst out laughing, to the astonishment and encouragement of a group of night prowlers. Thirty years ago I did not exist, and never in my life had I boasted a brother. The stuff was surely liquid folly, for the poignant regret for that lost brother still clung to me along portland road the madness took another turn i began to recall vanished shops and to compare the street with what it used to be confused troubled thinking is comprehensible enough after the drink i had taken but what puzzled me were these curiously vivid phantasm memories that had crept into my mind and not only the memories that had crept in but also the memories that had slipped out I stopped outside stevens's the natural history dealer's and cudgelled my brains to think what he had to do with me a bus went by and sounded exactly like the rumbling of a train i seemed to be dipping into some dark remote pit for the recollection of course said i at last he has promised me three frogs tomorrow odd that i should have forgotten do they still show children dissolving views. In those, I remember one view would begin like a faint ghost, and grow and oust another. In just that way, it seemed to me that a ghostly set of new sensations was struggling with those of my ordinary self. I went on through Euston Road to Tottenham Court Road, puzzled and a little frightened, and scarcely noticed the unusual way I was taking for commonly i used to cut through the intervening network of back streets i turned into university street to discover that i had forgotten my number only by a strong effort did i recall eleven a and even then it seemed to me that it was a thing some forgotten person had told me i tried to steady my mind by recalling the incidents of the dinner and for the life of me i could conjure up no picture of my host's face I saw him only as a shadowy outline, as one might see oneself reflected in a window through which one was looking. In his place, however, I had a curious exterior vision of myself sitting at a table, flushed, bright-eyed, and talkative. "'I must take this other powder,' said I. "'This is getting impossible.' I tried the wrong side of the hall for my candle and the matches and had a doubt of which landing my room might be on. "'I'm drunk,' I said. "'That's certain,' and blundered needlessly on the staircase to sustain the proposition. At the first glance my room seemed unfamiliar. "'What rot?' I said, and stared about me. I seemed to bring myself back by the effort, and the odd phantasmal quality passed into the concrete familiar. There was the old glass still, with my notes on the albumens stuck in the corner of the frame, my old everyday suit of clothes pitched about the floor, and yet it was not so real after all. I felt an idiotic persuasion, trying to creep into my mind, as it were, that I was in a railway carriage in a train just stopping, that I was peering out of the window at some unknown station. I gripped the bed-rail firmly to reassure myself. "'It's clairvoyance, perhaps,' I said. "'I must write to the Psychical Research Society.' I put the rouleau on my dressing-table, sat on my bed, and began to take off my boots. It was as if the picture of my present sensations was painted over some other picture that was trying to show through. "'Curse it!' said I. "'My wits are going.' or am i in two places at once half undressed i tossed the powder into a glass and drank it off it effervesced and became a fluorescent amber colour before i was in bed my mind was already tranquillised i felt the pillow at my cheek and thereupon i must have fallen asleep i awoke abruptly out of a dream of strange beasts and found myself lying on my back Probably everyone knows that dismal emotional dream from which one escapes. Awake, indeed, but strangely cowed. There was a curious taste in my mouth, a tired feeling in my limbs, a sense of cutaneous discomfort. I lay with my head motionless on my pillow, expecting that my feeling of strangeness and terror would pass away and that I should then doze off again to sleep. But instead of that my uncanny sensations increased. At first I could perceive nothing wrong about me. There was a faint light in the room, so faint that it was the very next thing to darkness, and the furniture stood out in it as vague blocks of absolute darkness. I stared, with my eyes just over the bedclothes. It came into my mind that someone had entered the room to rob me of my rouleau of money. But After lying for some moments, breathing regularly to simulate sleep, I realized this was mere fancy. Nevertheless, the uneasy assurance of something wrong kept fast hold of me. With an effort, I raised my head from the pillow and peered about me at the dark. What it was, I could not conceive. I looked at the dim shapes around me, the greater and lesser darknesses that indicated curtains, table, fireplace, bookshelves, and so forth. Then I began to perceive something unfamiliar in the forms of the darkness. Had the bed turned round, yonder should be the bookshelves, and something shrouded and pallid rose there, something that would not answer to the bookshelves, however I looked at it. It was far too big to be my shirt thrown on a chair overcoming a childish terror i threw back the bedclothes and thrust my leg out of bed instead of coming out of my truckle bed upon the floor i found my foot scarcely reached the edge of the mattress i made another step as it were and sat up on the edge of the bed by the side of my bed should be the candle and the matches upon the broken chair i put out my hand and touched nothing i waved my hand in the darkness and it came against some heavy hanging soft and thick in texture which gave a rustling noise at my touch i grasped this and pulled it it appeared to be a curtain suspended over the head of my bed i was now thoroughly awake and beginning to realize that i was in a strange room i was puzzled i tried to recall the overnight circumstances and i found them now curiously enough vivid in my memory the supper my reception of the little packages, my wonder whether I was intoxicated, my slow undressing, the coolness to my flushed face of my pillow. I felt a sudden distrust. Was that last night, or the night before? At any rate, this room was strange to me, and I could not imagine how I had got into it. The dim, pallid outline was growing paler, and I perceived it was a window— with the dark shape of an oval toilet glass, against the weak intimation of the dawn that filtered through the blind. I stood up, and was surprised by a curious feeling of weakness and unsteadiness. With trembling hands outstretched, I walked slowly towards the window, getting, nevertheless, a bruise on the knee from a chair by the way. I fumbled round the glass, which was large, with handsome brass sconces, to find the blind cord. I could not find any. By chance I took hold of the tassel, and with the click of a spring the blind ran up. I found myself looking out upon a scene that was altogether strange to me. The night was overcast, and through the flocculent grey of the heaped clouds there filtered a faint half-light of dawn. Just at the edge of the sky the cloud canopy had a blood-red rim. Below everything was dark and indistinct dim hills in the distance a vague mass of buildings running up into pinnacles trees like spilt ink and below the window a tracery of black bushes and pale grey paths it was so unfamiliar that for the moment i thought myself still dreaming i felt the toilet table it appeared to be made of some polished wood and was rather elaborately furnished There were little cut glass bottles and a brush upon it. There was also a queer little object, horseshoe shape it felt, with smooth, hard projections, lying in a saucer. I could find no matches nor candlestick. I turned my eyes to the room again. Now the blind was up. Faint spectres of its furnishing came out of the darkness. There was a huge, curtained bed, and the fireplace at its foot had a large white mantle, with something of the shimmer of marble. I leant against the toilet table, shut my eyes and opened them again, and tried to think. The whole thing was far too real for dreaming. I was inclined to imagine there was still some hiatus in my memory, as a consequence of my draft of that strange liqueur, that I had come into my inheritance, perhaps, and suddenly lost my recollection of everything since my good fortune had been announced perhaps if i waited a little things would be clearer to me again yet my dinner with old Elvisham was now singularly vivid and recent the champagne the observant waiters the powder and the liqueurs i could have staked my soul it all happened a few hours ago and then occurred a thing so trivial and yet so terrible to me that i shiver now to think of that moment i spoke aloud i said How the devil did I get here? And the voice was not my own. It was not my own. It was thin. The articulation was slurred. The resonance of my facial bones was different. Then, to reassure myself, I ran one hand over the other, and felt loose folds of skin, the bony laxity of age. Surely, I said, in that horrible voice that had somehow established itself in my throat, Surely this thing is a dream. Almost as quickly as if I did it voluntarily, I thrust my fingers into my mouth. My teeth had gone. My fingertips ran on the flaccid surface of an even row of shriveled gums. I was sick with dismay and disgust. I felt then a passionate desire to see myself, to realize at once, in its full horror, the ghastly change that had come upon me. I tottered to the mantel and felt along it for matches. As I did so, a barking cough sprang up in my throat, and I clutched the thick flannel nightdress I found about me. There were no matches there, and I suddenly realized that my extremities were cold. Sniffing and coughing, whimpering a little, perhaps, I fumbled back to the bed. "'It is surely a dream,' I whispered to myself as I clambered back surely a dream it was a senile repetition i pulled the bedclothes over my shoulders over my ears i thrust my withered hand under the pillow and determined to compose myself to sleep of course it was a dream in the morning the dream would be over and i should wake up strong and vigorous again to my youth and studies i shut my eyes breathed regularly and finding myself wakeful began to count slowly through the powers of three. But the thing I desired would not come. I could not get to sleep, and the persuasion of the inexorable reality of the change that had happened to me grew steadily. Presently I found myself with my eyes wide open, the powers of three forgotten, and my skinny fingers upon my shrivelled gums. I was, indeed, suddenly and abruptly an old man. I had, in some unaccountable manner, fallen through my life and come to old age. In some way I had been cheated of all the best of my life, of love, of struggle, of strength and hope. I grovelled into the pillow and tried to persuade myself that such hallucination was possible. Imperceptibly, steadily, the dawn grew clearer. At last, despairing of further sleep, I sat up in bed and looked about me. A chill twilight rendered the whole chamber visible. It was spacious and well furnished, better furnished than any room I had ever slept in before. A candle and matches became dimly visible upon a little pedestal in a recess. I threw back the bedclothes, and, shivering with the rawness of the early morning, albeit it was summertime, I got out and lit the candle, then, trembling horribly, so that the extinguisher rattled on its spike i tottered to the glass and saw Elvesham's face it was none the less horrible because i had already dimly feared as much he had already seemed physically weak and pitiful to me but seen now dressed only in a short flannel nightdress that fell apart and showed the stringy neck seen now as my own body i cannot describe its desolate decrepitude the hollow cheeks the straggling tail of dirty gray hair the roomy bleared eyes the quivering shrivelled lips the lower displaying a gleam of the pink interior lining and those horrible dark gums showing you who are mind and body together at your natural years cannot imagine what this fiendish imprisonment meant to me to be young and full of the desire and energy of youth and to be caught and presently to be crushed in this tottering ruin of a body but i wander from the course of my story for some time i must have been stunned at this change that had come upon me it was daylight when i did so far gather myself together as to think in some inexplicable way i had been changed though how short of magic the thing had been done, I could not say, and, as I thought, the diabolical ingenuity of Elfsham came home to me. It seemed plain to me that, as I found myself in his, so he must be in possession of my body, of my strength, that is, and my future. But how to prove it? Then, as I thought, the thing became so incredible even to me that my mind reeled, and I had to pinch myself, to feel my toothless gums, to see myself in the glass, and touch the things about me, before I could steady myself to face the facts again. Was all life hallucination? Was I, indeed, Elvesham, and he, me? Had I been dreaming of Eden overnight? Was there any Eden? But if I was Elvesham, I should remember where I was on the previous morning, the name of the town in which I lived, what happened before the dream began. I struggled with my thoughts. I recalled the queer doubleness of my memories overnight. But now my mind was clear. Not the ghost of any memories, but those proper to Eden, could I raise. "'This way lies insanity,' I cried in my piping voice, I staggered to my feet, dragged my feeble heavy limbs to the wash-hand stand, and plunged my grey head into a basin of cold water. Then, toweling myself, I tried again. It was no good. I felt, beyond all question, that I was indeed Eden, not Elvesham, but Eden in Elvesham's body. Had I been a man of any other age? I might have given myself up to my fate as one enchanted. But in these sceptical days, miracles do not pass current. Here was some trick of psychology. What a drug and a steady stare could do, a drug and a steady stare or some similar treatment could surely undo. Men have lost their memories before, but to exchange memories as one does umbrellas. I laughed, alas, not a healthy laugh, but a wheezing, senile titter. I could have fancied old Elvesham laughing at my plight, and a gust of petulant anger unusual to me swept across my feelings. I began dressing eagerly in the clothes I found lying about on the floor, and only realized when I was dressed that it was an evening suit I had assumed. I opened the wardrobe and found some more ordinary clothes a pair of plaid trousers and an old-fashioned dressing-gown i put a venerable smoking-cap on my venerable head and coughing a little from my exertions tottered out upon the landing it was then perhaps a quarter to six and the blinds were closely drawn and the house quite silent the landing was a spacious one a broad richly carpeted staircase went down into the darkness of the hall below and before me a door ajar showed me a writing desk, a revolving bookcase, the back of a study chair, and a fine array of bound books, shelf upon shelf. "'My study,' I mumbled, and walked across the landing. Then, at the sound of my voice, a thought struck me, and I went back to the bedroom and put in the set of false teeth. They slipped in with the ease of old habit." That's better said i gnashing them and so returned to the study the drawers of the writing-desk were locked its revolving top was also locked I could see no indications of the keys and there were none in the pockets of my trousers I shuffled back at once to the bedroom and went through the dress-suit and afterwards the pockets of all the garments I could find I was very eager and one might have imagined that burglars had been at work to see my room when I had done. Not only were there no keys to be found, but not a coin, nor a scrap of paper, save only the receipted bill of the overnight dinner. A curious weariness asserted itself. I sat down and stared at the garments, flung here and there, their pockets turned inside out. My first frenzy had already flickered out every moment— I was beginning to realize the immense intelligence of the plans of my enemy, to see more and more clearly the hopelessness of my position. With an effort I rose and hurried, hobbling into the study again. On the staircase was a housemaid pulling up the blinds. She stared, I think, at the expression of my face. I shut the door of the study behind me, and, seizing a poker, began an attack on the desk. That is how they found me. The cover of the desk was split, the lock smashed, the letters torn out of the pigeon-holes and tossed about the room. In my senile rage, I had flung about the pens and other such light stationery, and overturned the ink. Moreover, a large vase upon the mantel had got broken. I do not know how. I could find no cheque-book, no money, no indications of the slightest use for the recovery of my body. I was battering madly at the drawers when the butler, backed by two women servants, intruded upon me. That, simply, is the story of my change. No one will believe my frantic assertions. I am treated as one demented, and even at this moment I am under restraint. But I am sane, absolutely sane, and to prove it, I have sat down to write this story minutely, as the things happened to me. I appeal to the reader whether there is any trace of insanity in the style or method of the story he has been reading. I am a young man, locked away in an old man's body, but the clear fact is incredible to everyone. Naturally, I appear demented to those who will not believe this. Naturally, I do not know the names of my secretaries, of the doctors who come to see me, of my servants and neighbors of this town wherever it is where I find myself naturally I lose myself in my own house and suffer inconveniences of every sort naturally I ask the oddest questions naturally I weep and cry out and have paroxysms of despair i have no money and no check-book the bank will not recognize my signature for I suppose that, allowing for the feeble muscles I now have, my handwriting is still Eden's. These people about me will not let me go to the bank personally. It seems, indeed, that there is no bank in this town, and that I have an account in some part of London. It seems that Elfsham kept the name of his solicitor secret from all his household. I can ascertain nothing." Elvsham was, of course, a profound student of mental science, and all my declarations of the facts of the case merely confirm the theory that my insanity is the outcome of overmuch brooding upon psychology. Dreams of the personal identity, indeed. Two days ago, I was a healthy youngster, with all life before me. Now I am a furious, old man, unkempt and desperate, and miserable, prowling about a great, luxurious, strange house, watched, feared, and avoided as a lunatic by every one about me. And in London is Elvesham, beginning life again in a vigorous body, and with all the accumulated knowledge and wisdom of threescore and ten, he has stolen my life what has happened i do not clearly know in the study are volumes of manuscript notes referring chiefly to the psychology of memory and parts of what may be either calculations or ciphers in symbols absolutely strange to me in some passages there are indications that he was also occupied with the philosophy of mathematics i take it he has transferred the whole of his memories the accumulation that makes up his personality from this old withered brain of his to mine and similarly that he has transferred mine to his discarded tenement practically that is he has changed bodies but how such a change may be possible is without the range of my philosophy i have been a materialist for all my thinking life but here suddenly is a clear case of man's detachability from matter one desperate experiment i am about to try i sit writing here before putting the matter to issue this morning with the help of a table knife that i had secreted at breakfast i succeeded in breaking open a fairly obvious secret drawer in this wrecked writing desk i discovered nothing save a little green glass file containing a white powder round the neck of the file was a label and thereon was written this one word, release. This may be, is most probably, poison. I can understand Elvesham placing poison in my way, and I should be sure that it was his intention so to get rid of the only living witness against him. Were it not for this careful concealment, the man has practically solved the problem of immortality save for the spite of chance, he will live in my body until it has aged, and then, again, throwing that aside, he will assume some other victim's youth and strength. When one remembers his heartlessness, it is terrible to think of the ever-growing experience that how long has he been leaping from body to body? But I tire of writing. The powder appears to be soluble in water." The taste is not unpleasant. There, the narrative found upon Mr. Elvesham's desk ends. His dead body lay between the desk and the chair. The latter had been pushed back, probably by his last convulsions. The story was written in pencil and in a crazy hand, quite unlike his usual minute characters. There remain only two curious facts to record. Indisputably, there was some connection between Eden and Elfsham, since the whole of Elfsham's property was bequeathed to the young man, but he never inherited. When Elfsham committed suicide, Eden was, strangely enough, already dead. Twenty-four hours before, he had been knocked down by a cab and killed instantly at the crowded crossing at the intersection of Gower Street and Euston Road so that the only human being who could have thrown light upon this fantastic narrative is beyond the reach of questions without further comment i leave this extraordinary matter to the reader's individual judgment end of section 11 SECTION Twelve OF THE COUNTRY OF THE BLIND AND OTHER STORIES BY H. G. WELLS. THIS LIBRIVOX RECORDING IS IN THE PUBLIC DOMAIN. READ BY PETER YEARSLEY. UNDER THE KNIFE What if I die under it? The thought recurred again and again as I walked home from Haddon's. It was a purely personal question i was spared the deep anxieties of a married man and i knew there were few of my intimate friends but would find my death troublesome chiefly on account of their duty of regret i was surprised indeed and perhaps a little humiliated as i turned the matter over to think how few could possibly exceed the conventional requirement things came before me stripped of glamour in a clear dry light during that walk from Haddon's house over Primrose Hill. There were the friends of my youth. I perceived now that our affection was a tradition, which we foregathered rather laboriously to maintain. There were the rivals and helpers of my later career. I suppose I had been cold-blooded or undemonstrative. One, perhaps, implies the other. It may be that even the capacity for friendship is a question of physique, there had been a time in my own life when i had grieved bitterly enough at the loss of a friend but as i walked home that afternoon the emotional side of my imagination was dormant i could not pity myself nor feel sorry for my friends nor conceive of them as grieving for me i was interested in this deadness of my emotional nature no doubt a concomitant of my stagnating physiology and my thoughts wandered off along the line it suggested once before in my hot youth i had suffered a sudden loss of blood and had been within an ace of death i remembered now that my affections as well as my passions had drained out of me leaving scarce anything but a tranquil resignation a dreg of self-pity it had been weeks before the old ambitions and tendernesses and all the complex moral interplay of a man had reasserted themselves it occurred to me that the real meaning of this numbness might be a gradual slipping away from the pleasure pain guidance of the animal man it has been proven i take it as thoroughly as anything can be proven in this world that the higher emotions the moral feelings even the subtle unselfishness of love are evolved from the elemental desires and fears of the simple animal. They are the harness in which man's mental freedom goes. And it may be that as death overshadows us, as our possibility of acting diminishes, this complex growth of balanced impulse, propensity and aversion, whose interplay inspires our acts, goes with it. Leaving what? I was suddenly brought back to reality by an imminent collision with the butcher boy's tray. I found that I was crossing the bridge over the Regent's Park Canal, which runs parallel with that in the zoological gardens. The boy in blue had been looking over his shoulder at a black barge, advancing slowly, towed by a gaunt white horse. In the gardens a nurse was leading three happy little children over the bridge. THE TREES WERE BRIGHT GREEN, THE SPRING HOPEFULNESS WAS STILL UNSTAINED BY THE DUSTS OF SUMMER. THE SKY IN THE WATER WAS BRIGHT AND CLEAR, BUT BROKEN BY LONG WAVES, BY QUIVERING BANDS OF BLACK, AS THE BARGE DROVE THROUGH. THE BREEZE WAS STIRRING, BUT IT DID NOT STIR ME AS THE SPRING BREEZE USED TO DO. WAS THIS DULNESS OF FEELING IN ITSELF AN ANTICIPATION? it was curious that i could reason and follow out a network of suggestion as clearly as ever so at least it seemed to me it was calmness rather than dulness that was coming upon me was there any ground for the relief in the presentiment of death did a man near to death begin instinctively to withdraw himself from the meshes of matter and sense even before the cold hand was laid upon his. I felt strangely isolated, isolated without regret, from the life and existence about me, the children playing in the sun and gathering strength and experience for the business of life, the park-keeper gossiping with the nursemaid, the nursing mother, the young couple intent upon each other as they passed me, the trees by the wayside spreading new, pleading leaves to the sunlight, the stir in their branches. I had been part of it all, but I had nearly done with it now. Some way down the broad walk I perceived that I was tired and that my feet were heavy. It was hot that afternoon, and I turned aside and sat down on one of the green chairs that lined the way. In a minute I had dozed into a dream and the tide of my thoughts washed up a vision of the resurrection i was still sitting in the chair but i thought myself actually dead withered tattered dried one eye i saw pecked out by birds awake cried a voice and incontinently the dust of the path and the mould under the grass became insurgent I had never before thought of Regent's Park as a cemetery, but now through the trees, stretching as far as I could see, I beheld a flat plain of writhing graves and healing tombstones. There seemed to be some trouble. The rising dead appeared to stifle as they struggled upwards. They bled in their struggles. The red flesh was torn away from the white bones. "'Awake!' cried a voice but I determined I would not rise to such horrors. Awake! They would not let me alone. Wake up! said an angry voice. A cockney angel? The man who sells the tickets was shaking me, demanding my penny. I paid my penny, pocketed my ticket, yawned, stretched my legs, and feeling now rather less torpid, got up and walked on, towards Langham Place. I speedily lost myself again in a shifting maze of thoughts about death. Going across Marylebone Road into that crescent at the end of Langham Place, I had the narrowest escape from the shaft of a cab, and went on my way with a palpitating heart and a bruised shoulder. It struck me that it would have been curious if my meditations on my death on the morrow had led to my death that day but i will not weary you with more of my experiences that day and the next i knew more and more certainly that i should die under the operation at times i think i was inclined to pose to myself the doctors were coming at eleven and i did not get up it seemed scarce worth while to trouble about washing and dressing and though I read my newspapers and the letters that came by the first post, I did not find them very interesting. There was a friendly note from Addison, my old school friend, calling my attention to two discrepancies and a printer's error in my new book, with one from Langridge venting some vexation over Minton. The rest were business communications. I breakfasted in bed. The glow of pain at my side seemed more massive i knew it was pain and yet if you can understand i did not find it very painful i had been awake and hot and thirsty in the night but in the morning bed felt comfortable in the night time i had lain thinking of things that were past in the morning i dozed over the question of immortality haddon came punctual to the minute with a neat black bag, and Mowbray soon followed. Their arrival stirred me up a little. I began to take a more personal interest in the proceedings. Haddon moved the little octagonal table close to the bedside, and, with his broad back to me, began taking things out of his bag. I heard the light click of steel upon steel. My (laughs) imagination, I found, was not altogether stagnant will you hurt me much i said in an offhand tone not a bit Haddon answered over his shoulder we shall chloroform you your heart's as sound as a bell and as he spoke i had a whiff of the pungent sweetness of the anaesthetic they stretched me out with a convenient exposure of my side and almost before i realised what was happening the chloroform was being administered. It stings the nostrils, and there is a suffocating sensation at first. I knew I should die, that this was the end of consciousness for me, and suddenly I felt that I was not prepared for death. I had a vague sense of a duty overlooked. I knew not what. What was it I had not done? I could think of nothing more to do, nothing desirable left in life. And yet I had the strangest disinclination to death, and the physical sensation was painfully oppressive. Of course, the doctors did not know they were going to kill me. Possibly I struggled. Then I fell motionless, and a great silence, a monstrous silence, and an impenetrable blackness came upon me. There must have been an interval of absolute unconsciousness, seconds or minutes, Then, with a chilly, unemotional clearness, I perceived that I was not yet dead. I was still in my body, but all the multitudinous sensations that come sweeping from it, to make up the background of consciousness, had gone, leaving me free of it all. No, not free of it all, for, as yet, something still held me to the poor, stark flesh upon the bed, held me yet not so closely that i did not feel myself external to it independent of it straining away from it i do not think i saw i do not think i heard but i perceived all that was going on and it was as if i both heard and saw haddon was bending over me mowbray behind me the scalpel it was a large scalpel was cutting my flesh at the side, under the flying ribs. It was interesting to see myself cut like cheese, without a pang, without even a qualm. The interest was much of a quality, with that one might feel in a game of chess between strangers. Haddon's face was firm and his hand steady, but I was surprised to perceive, how I know not, that he was feeling the gravest doubt as to his own wisdom in the conduct of the operation mowbray's thoughts too i could see he was thinking that haddon's manner showed too much of the specialist new suggestions came up like bubbles through a stream of frothing meditation and burst one after another in the little bright spot of his consciousness he could not help noticing and admiring haddon's swift dexterity in spite of his envious quality and his disposition to detract. I saw my liver exposed. I was puzzled at my own condition. I did not feel that I was dead, but I was different in some way from my living self. The grey depression that had weighed on me for a year or more, and coloured all my thoughts, was gone. I perceived and thought without any emotional tint at all. I wondered if everyone perceived things in this way under chloroform, and forgot it again when he came out of it. It would be inconvenient to look into some heads and not forget. Although I did not think that I was dead, I still perceived quite clearly that I was soon to die. This brought me back to the consideration of Haddon's proceedings I looked into his mind, and saw that he was afraid of cutting a branch of the portal vein. My attention was distracted from details by the curious changes going on in his mind. His consciousness was like the quivering little spot of light which is thrown by the mirror of a galvanometer. His thoughts ran under it like a stream, some through the focus, bright and distinct, some shadowy, in the half-light of the edge. Just now, the little glow was steady, but the least movement on Mowbray's part, the slightest sound from outside, even a faint difference in the slow movement of the living flesh he was cutting, set the light spot shivering and spinning. A new sense impression came rushing up through the flow of thoughts, and lo, the light spot jerked away towards it, swifter than a frightened fish. It was wonderful to think that, upon that unstable, fitful thing, depended all the complex motions of the man, that, for the next five minutes, therefore, my life hung upon its movements. And he was growing more and more nervous in his work. It was as if a little picture of a cut vein grew brighter, and struggled to oust from his brain another picture of a cut falling short of the mark. He was afraid. His dread of cutting too little was battling with his dread of cutting too far. Then suddenly, like an escape of water from under a lock-gate, a great uprush of horrible realization set all his thoughts swirling, and simultaneously I perceived that the vein was cut. He started back with a hoarse exclamation, and I saw the brown-purple blood gather in a swift bead, and run trickling. He was horrified. He pitched the red-stained scalpel onto the octagonal table, and instantly both doctors flung themselves upon me, making hasty and ill-conceived efforts to remedy the disaster. "'Ice!' said Mowbray, gasping, but I knew that I was killed, though my body still clung to me. I will not describe their belated endeavours to save me, though I perceived every detail. My perceptions were sharper and swifter than they had ever been in life." My thoughts rushed through my mind with incredible swiftness but with perfect definition. I can only compare their crowded clarity to the effects of a reasonable dose of opium. In a moment it would all be over, and I should be free. I knew I was immortal, but what would happen I did not know. Should I drift off presently, like a puff of smoke from a gun, in some kind of half-material body? An attenuated version of my material self should i find myself suddenly among the innumerable hosts of the dead and know the world about me for the phantasmagoria it had always seemed should i drift to some spiritualistic seance and there make foolish incomprehensible attempts to affect a purblind medium it was a state of unemotional curiosity of colorless expectation. And then I realized a growing stress upon me, a feeling as though some huge human magnet was drawing me upward out of my body. The stress grew and grew. I seemed an atom for which monstrous forces were fighting. For one brief terrible moment, sensation came back to me. That feeling of falling headlong which comes in nightmares, that feeling A THOUSAND TIMES INTENSIFIED, THAT AND A BLACK HORROR SWEPT ACROSS MY THOUGHTS IN A TORRENT. THEN THE TWO DOCTORS, THE NAKED BODY WITH ITS CUT SIDE, THE LITTLE ROOM, SWEPT AWAY FROM UNDER ME AND VANISHED AS A SPECK OF FOAM VANISHES DOWN AN eddy. I WAS IN MID AIR. FAR BELOW WAS THE WEST END OF LONDON receding rapidly for i seemed to be flying swiftly upward and as it receded passing westward like a panorama i could see through the faint haze of smoke the innumerable roofs chimney set the narrow roadways stippled with people and conveyances the little specks of squares and the church steeples like thorns sticking out of the fabric but it spun away as the earth rotated on its axis, and in a few seconds, as it seemed, I was over the scattered clumps of town about Ealing, the little Thames, a thread of blue to the south, and the Chiltern hills and the North Downs coming up like the rim of a basin, far away and faint with haze. Up I rushed, and at first I had not the faintest conception what this headlong rush upward could mean. Every moment the circle of scenery beneath me grew wider and wider, and the details of town and field, of hill and valley, got more and more hazy and pale and indistinct. A luminous grey was mingled more and more with the blue of the hills and the green of the open meadows, and a little patch of cloud, low and far to the west, shone ever more dazzlingly white above as the veil of atmosphere between myself and outer space grew thinner the sky which had been a fair springtime blue at first grew deeper and richer in colour passing steadily through the intervening shades until presently it was as dark as the blue sky of midnight and presently as black as the blackness of a frosty starlight and at last as black as no blackness i had ever beheld and first one star and then many and at last an innumerable host broke out upon the sky more stars than any one has ever seen from the face of the earth for the blueness of the sky in the light of the sun and stars sifted and spread abroad blindingly there is diffused light even in the darkest skies of winter and we do not see the stars by day, only because of the dazzling irradiation of the sun. But now I saw things I know not how, assuredly with no mortal eyes, and that defect of bedazzlement blinded me no longer. The sun was incredibly strange and wonderful. The body of it was a disk of blinding white light, not yellowish as it seems to those who live upon the earth, but livid white all streaked with scarlet streaks and rimmed about with a fringe of writhing tongues of red fire, and shooting halfway across the heavens from either side of it, and brighter than the Milky Way, were two pinions of silver-white, making it look more like those winged globes I have seen in Egyptian sculpture than anything else I can remember upon earth. These I knew for the solar corona, though i had never seen anything of it but a picture during the days of my earthly life when my attention came back to the earth again i saw that it had fallen very far away from me field and town were long since indistinguishable and all the varied hues of the country were merging into a uniform bright grey broken only by the brilliant white of the clouds that lay scattered in flocculent masses over Ireland and the west of England. For now I could see the outlines of the north of France and Ireland, and all this island of Britain, save where Scotland passed over the horizon to the north, or where the coast was blurred or obliterated by cloud. The sea was a dull grey, and darker than the land, and the whole panorama was rotating slowly towards the east all this had happened so swiftly that until i was some thousand miles or so from the earth i had no thought for myself but now i perceived i had neither hands nor feet neither parts nor organs and that i felt neither alarm nor pain all about me i perceived that the vacancy for i had already left the air behind was cold beyond the imagination of man but it troubled me not the sun's rays shot through the void powerless to light or heat until they should strike on matter in their course i saw things with a serene self forgetfulness even as if i were god and down below there rushing away from me countless miles in a second where a little dark spot on the grey marked the position of london two doctors were struggling to restore life to the poor hacked and outworn shell i had abandoned i felt then such release such serenity as i can compare to no mortal delight i have ever known it was only after i had perceived all these things that the meaning of that headlong rush of the earth grew into comprehension, yet it was so simple, so obvious, that I was amazed at my never anticipating the thing that was happening to me. I had suddenly been cut adrift from matter. All that was material of me was there upon earth, whirling away through space, held to the earth by gravitation, partaking of the earth inertia moving in its wreaths of epicycles round the sun and with the sun and the planets on their vast march through space but the immaterial has no inertia feels nothing of the pull of matter for matter where it parts from its garment of flesh there it remains so far as space concerns it any longer immovable in space i was not leaving the earth the earth was leaving me, and not only the earth, but the whole solar system was streaming past, and about me in space, invisible to me, scattered in the wake of the earth upon its journey, there must be an innumerable multitude of souls, stripped, like myself, of the material, stripped, like myself, of the passions of the individual, and the generous emotions of the gregarious, brute, naked intelligences, things of new-born wonder and thought, marvelling at the strange release that had suddenly come on them. As I receded faster and faster from the strange white sun in the black heavens and from the broad and shining earth upon which my being had begun, I seemed to grow in some incredible manner, vast, vast as regards this world I had left, vast as regards the moments and periods of a human life very soon i saw the full circle of the earth slightly gibbous like the moon when she nears her full but very large and the silvery shape of america was now in the noonday blaze wherein as it seemed little england had been basking but a few minutes ago at first the earth was large and shone in the heavens filling a great part of them but every moment she grew smaller and more distant as she shrank, the broad moon in its third quarter crept into view over the rim of her disk. I looked for the constellations, only that part of Aries directly behind the sun and the lion, which the earth covered, were hidden. I recognized the tortuous tattered band of the Milky Way, with Vega very bright between sun and earth and sirius and orion shone splendid against the unfathomable blackness in the opposite quarter of the heavens the pole star was overhead and the great bear hung over the circle of the earth and away beneath and beyond the shining corona of the sun were strange groupings of stars i had never seen in my life notably a dagger-shaped group that i knew for the southern cross all these were no larger than when they had shone on earth but the little stars that one scarce sees shone now against the setting of black vacancy as brightly as the first magnitudes had done while the larger worlds were points of indescribable glory and colour aldebaran was a spot of blood-red fire and sirius condensed to one point the light of innumerable sapphires and they shone steadily they did not scintillate they were calmly glorious my impressions had an adamantine hardness and brightness there was no blurring softness no atmosphere nothing but infinite darkness set with the myriads of these acute and brilliant points and specks of light presently when i looked again the little earth seemed no bigger than the sun and it dwindled and turned as I looked, until in a second's space, as it seemed to me, it was halved, and so it went on, swiftly dwindling. Far away in the opposite direction, a little pinkish pin's head of light, shining steadily, was the planet Mars. I swam motionless in vacancy, and, without a trace of terror or astonishment, watched the speck of cosmic dust we call the world fall away from me presently it dawned upon me that my sense of duration had changed that my mind was moving not faster but infinitely slower that between each separate impression there was a period of many days the moon spun once round the earth as i noted this and i perceived clearly the motion of mars in his orbit Moreover, it appeared as if the time between thought and thought grew steadily greater, until, at last, a thousand years was but a moment in my perception. At first the constellations had shone motionless against the black background of infinite space, but presently it seemed as though the group of stars about Hercules and the Scorpion was contracting, while Orion and Aldebaran and their neighbors were scattering apart. Flashing suddenly out of the darkness, there came a flying multitude of particles of rock, glittering like dust-specks in a sunbeam, and encompassed in a faintly luminous cloud. They swirled all about me, and vanished again in a twinkling far behind. And then I saw that a bright spot of light, that shone a little to one side of my path, was growing very rapidly larger and perceived that it was the planet Saturn rushing towards me. Larger and larger it grew, swallowing up the heavens behind it, and hiding every moment a fresh multitude of stars. I perceived its flattened, whirling body, its disc-like belt, and seven of its little satellites. It grew and grew till it towered enormous, And then I plunged amid a streaming multitude of clashing stones and dancing dust particles and gas eddies, and saw for a moment the mighty triple belt like three concentric arches of moonlight above me, its shadow black on the boiling tumult below. These things happened in one-tenth of the time it takes to tell them. The planet went by like a flash of lightning. For a few seconds it blotted out the sun, and there and then became a mere black dwindling winged patch against the light the earth the mother mote of my being i could no longer see so with a stately swiftness in the profoundest silence the solar system fell from me as it had been a garment until the sun was a mere star amid the multitude of stars with its eddy of planet specks lost in the confused glittering of the remoter light. I was no longer a denizen of the solar system. I had come to the outer universe. I seemed to grasp and comprehend the whole world of matter. Ever more swiftly, the stars closed in about the spot where Antares and Vega had vanished in a phosphorescent haze, until that part of the sky had the semblance of a whirling mass of nebulae, and ever before me, yawned vaster gaps of vacant blackness, and the stars shone fewer and fewer. It seemed as if I moved towards a point between Orion's belt and sword, and the void about that region opened vaster and vaster every second, an incredible gulf of nothingness into which I was falling. Faster and ever faster the universe rushed by, a hurry of whirling motes at last, speeding silently into the void stars growing brighter and brighter with their circling planets catching the light in a ghostly fashion as i neared them shone out and vanished again into inexistence faint comets clusters of meteorites winking specks of matter eddying light points whizzed past some perhaps a hundred millions of miles or so from me at most few nearer travelling with unimaginable rapidity shooting constellations momentary darts of fire through that black enormous night more than anything else it was like a dusty draught sunbeam lit broader and wider and deeper grew the starless space the vacant beyond into which i was being drawn at last a quarter of the heavens was black and blank and the whole headlong rush of stellar universe closed in behind me, like a veil of light that is gathered together. It drove away from me like a monstrous jack-o'-lantern driven by the wind. I had come out into the wilderness of space. Ever the vacant blackness grew broader, until the hosts of the stars seemed only like a swarm of fiery specks hurrying away from me, inconceivably remote, and the darkness, the nothingness and emptiness Was about me on every side. Soon the little universe of matter, the cage of points in which I had begun to be, was dwindling now to a whirling disk of luminous glittering, and now to one minute disk of hazy light. In a little while it would shrink to a point, and at last would vanish altogether. Suddenly feeling came back to me, feeling in the shape of overwhelming terror such a dread of those dark vastitudes as no word can describe, a passionate resurgence of sympathy and social desire. Were there other souls, invisible to me as I to them, about me in the darkness, or was I, indeed, even as I felt, alone? Had I passed out of being into something that was neither being nor not being? The covering of the body, the covering of matter, had been torn from me, and the hallucinations of companionship and security. Everything was black and silent. I had ceased to be. I was nothing. There was nothing save only that infinitesimal dot of light that dwindled in the gulf. I strained myself to hear and see, and for a while there was naught but infinite silence, intolerable darkness, horror and despair. Then I saw that about the spot of light into which the whole world of matter had shrunk there was a faint glow, and, in a band on either side of that, the darkness was not absolute. I watched it for ages as it seemed to me, and through the long waiting the haze grew imperceptibly more distinct, and then about the band appeared an irregular cloud of the faintest, palest brown. I felt a passionate impatience, but the things grew brighter so slowly that they scarce seemed to change. What was unfolding itself? What was this strange reddish dawn in the interminable night of space? The cloud's shape was grotesque. It seemed to be looped along its lower side into four projecting masses, and above it ended in a straight line. What phantom was it? I felt assured I had seen that figure before, but I could not think what nor where nor when it was. Then the realization rushed upon me. It was a clenched hand. I was alone in space, alone with this huge shadowy hand, upon which the whole universe of matter lay like an unconsidered speck of dust. It seemed as though I watched it through vast periods of time. On the forefinger glittered a ring, and the universe from which I had come was but a spot of light upon the ring's curvature, and the thing that the hand gripped had the likeness of a black rod. Through a long eternity I watched this hand, with the ring and the rod, marvelling and fearing and waiting helplessly on what might follow. It seemed as though nothing could follow that i should watch for ever seeing only the hand and the thing it held and understanding nothing of its import was the whole universe but a refracting speck upon some greater being were our worlds but the atoms of another universe and those again of another and so on through an endless progression and what was i was i indeed immaterial a vague persuasion of a body gathering about me came into my suspense the abysmal darkness about the hand filled with impalpable suggestions with uncertain fluctuating shapes then suddenly came a sound like the sound of a tolling bell faint as if infinitely far muffled as though heard through thick swathings of darkness a deep vibrating resonance, with vast gulfs of silence between each stroke. And the hand appeared to tighten on the rod, and I saw, far above the hand, towards the apex of the darkness, a circle of dim phosphorescence, a glowing sphere whence these sounds came throbbing. And, at the last stroke, the hand vanished, for the hour had come, and I heard a noise of many waters but the black rod remained as a great band across the sky, and then a voice which seemed to run to the uttermost parts of space spoke, saying, There will be no more pain. At that, an almost intolerable gladness and radiance rushed in upon me, and I saw the circle shining white and bright, and the rod black and shining, and many things else distinct and clear, and the circle was the face of the clock, and the rod the rail of my bed. Haddon was standing at the foot, against the rail, with a small pair of scissors on his fingers, and the hands of my clock on the mantel over his shoulder were clasped together over the hour of twelve. Mowbray was washing something in a basin at the octagonal table, and at my side I felt a subdued feeling that could scarce be spoken of as pain. The operation had not killed me, and I perceived suddenly that the dull melancholy of half a year was lifted from my mind. End of section 12 When you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments, not minutes. Like the moment your work stress disappears as you kayak through the canyons. Or the moment you discover the life-changing effects of prickly pear chocolate. But nothing beats the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the very first time. Visit a new state of mind. Learn more at hereyouareaz.com. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or Mc Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day.